You're listening to audio from the Branch Church Milledgeville. If you would like to learn more about our church, what we do, or who we are, please visit tbcmilledgeville.com. If you're located in the central Georgia area, please consider joining us for worship at 730 North Wayne Street in Milledgeville, Georgia, on Sundays with fellowship beginning at 10 a.m. and worship kicking off at 1030. In this prayer, Christ is now going from speaking to the disciples and his proclamation that he has overcome the world. He has been, in this time, speaking to the disciples for God, on behalf of God, right? And in this prayer, he's transitioning, and I love this, if you catch it, it is the God-man on display. He's going from speaking to the disciples on behalf of God to speaking to God on behalf of the disciples, And this is the whole arc of our text this morning, that he is praying to the Father within earshot of the disciples about the disciples. Now, if you can imagine what the disciples might fear to come out of Christ's prayer in his verbiage. Perhaps they were expecting something like, Father, forgive them in advance because they're about to goof it up again. Watch out for Peter. He's about to deny me three times. Instead, what we're going to see all throughout our text is Christ's proclamation of how he has preserved his disciples, pleading to the Father that he will continue to preserve them, and exactly how this will happen. So if you will, read verses 1 through 8 with me. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. To know God is to believe him, to love him, and to live for him. In this opening stanza of the high priestly prayer, we see the meaning of the Christian life. And just to know the Savior, to love the Savior, and to live for the Savior. So often this can be oversimplified and even at that face value seem like something that is ignorantly easy. And in that we all know, all of us here who have lived longer than however on earth, understand that it is not easy to live according to God's commandments. That it is not necessarily easy to press on through this life at times, let alone some mornings, and it's not easy to put off the old flesh that so encompasses us. But in this, I hope that we see, again, who is praying for us, why he is praying for us. Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Christ prays this here and also says that he manifested the Father's name before the disciples. In doing this, he is referencing the fact that he is the Word made flesh. 
that he was and is the right hand of God. And all of this, the disciples have seen this through the miracles that he has performed, the dead men he's raised to life, the lepers he's cleansed, the wine he's made appear from nowhere, the food he's provided from nothing. All these miracles in which he revealed his messianic rule, he is reinstating again to the disciples by the very fact that he's saying, Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. Return to me the glory I had beforehand. This is not just the man Christ here praying this prayer. It is the God-man Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came for sinners. He's laying out for the disciples again, if you remember just over the past couple weeks, the difficulty that the disciples are having is trying to wrap their minds around how and why they can have hope when Christ is about to leave. Now Christ is yet again providing a solution to their disbelief and saying that he is returning to the Father. That's where he started. That's where he'll continue to rule. That's where he'll continue to provide for his disciples. In this, we see that Christ's glorification mirrors our own salvation and the process of sanctification. Consider in your life how we were all once dead in sin and then raised to life. New life as new creations. In this, it is no longer we who live for ourselves, but we who live for the Father. So then every day that we wake up and draw breath and we go through, as we know it, preaching the gospel to ourselves, it is not just so we can know more, although that is part. It's not just so we can reset for a new day, although that is part, and so that we can mirror Christ's call here, that the Father would glorify us so we may glorify him that he would give us another day so we may give it to him that he would give us gospel opportunities so we could use them for him that he would put us in a position to enjoy this life and if not that he would make us joyful through tribulation why so that we may make much of him now mind you this that we know is not just wrapped up in the instance of salvation but in the continued unfolding of the Christian life that we know as sanctification. Salvation is a progressive act and a one-time regeneration. Simply put, Christ raises you from the dead. Regenerate. Christ continues to make you good over the course of this life. Sanctification. In this, we are not just in this world to not be evil or to stay away from the bad. We are in this world as salt and light and incense to be made new, to be made righteous, and to make the world new and to make it righteous. This was confused during the great period of awakening, um, of uh, we'll call them revivals in the late 70s and 80s where it was the Christian charge to gather a group and do mass altar calls and, and mass baptisms before it's too late. If you guys are familiar with church history at all and kind of know the term fire and brimstone preacher, it was preachers who would speak of the hotness of hell and the goodness of God and that we better cash in on it before it's too late. Where are you going tomorrow if you die? 
I fear that this has trickled down into our generation of evangelism of Christian living and that we have this mindset of the world that the church is going to lose, that we need to make good before it's too late and forget that Christ has planted roots so deep in this world that he runs everything. And that if we look back over the scope of scripture, we cannot find any of us one instance where a heavenly king or an earthly king rather a ruler, whether it be Pharaoh, to Hitler, to any president or ruler today, has ever come close to thwarting the will of God. We can never find a time in Scripture or history where culture has shined brighter their darkness than Christ has shined brighter the light of His church. I, I hope we as a church can reorient our minds into understanding that this world as we know it, though we see in our text that we are not of this world, we were sent here to establish this as our home. See, this earth is not going anywhere. It will be purified and made new on the final day, but this is it. All that we see around us is behind the veil of heavenly eternity. And we are in the process of doing good works, not just so we can pass out clothes like yesterday, not just so we can establish relationship with the community that God has put us in, but so that we can see dead souls raised to life and in that another crack into eternity. That we can see this world made new. Uh, we are not standing on top of this eternal size escape hatch. In other words, we're standing on a cornerstone and his name is Christ and his heart is on display here and that the disciples are in this world and they would rule the world. Remember the call of Genesis. Continuing here, we must see the significance of the coming Savior. In this, as I have already said, he is the God-man, and this completely uprooted and overturned everything that the Pharisees were speaking of. This sandcastle that they had built for themselves was based on the fact that the Messiah had not yet come, and although there was this man named Jesus who was performing these miracles and stumping them theologically, he was not the Messiah. He couldn't be. He didn't come as a king. He came on a donkey. All that we've gotten to see in John, right? And his being the God-man and coming how he came and establishing even still that he was with God before the world. He had this authority. It was not something that he earned or was given to him because of his obedience on earth. Otherwise, Christ would have displayed for us a works-based salvation. Instead, he is living what he has always been. The God-man, spotless sacrifice, and the one who could sow reality back together as the forefather Adam split it. Continue with me, verses 9 through 14. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
In this life, we must have a type of divine perseverance. A divine perseverance that we would every day understand exactly what is at stake, not just for those around us or in this world, but in our own lives. That we must consider exactly what it would cost us to neglect if for even a day a focus that is set on Christ. Now, you might hear this and consider or see maybe where I am going with this, but to even think about what it is we miss out on when we do not feast on God's word daily. About what it is we miss out on when we do not go before the Lord in prayer daily. And even more than that, moment by moment, as Paul said, it is not just something that you don't get to, I suppose, report to your DNA that you stuck with or come in here knowing you did it every day, but it is time with your Father. It is time with your Father. And how we have that now is not to follow the Messiah Christ in flesh. It is to see Him and His Word as He was the Word made flesh. And it is to go before Him with the Spirit in prayer as He sent the Spirit to be with us as He prays for us. We do not get the disposition of following in His shadow or His footsteps. Instead, we get the advantage of Him always being present with us. That is why it stacks up so quickly to miss out on partaking in abidance, to go before God, to truly be with Him as biblical children, not as those who are astute or no more and are revisiting an academic endeavor, but as needy, desperate, love, loving children that we would behold God for who He is, our Heavenly Father. In this life, our perseverance is not rooted in our best efforts or even our best lessons from our failures. Our perseverance is rooted in the soil of our Savior's prayers for us. There is nothing that we have or will go through in this life that Christ has not prepared us for or does not pray for us through. That is how intently, divinely, and sovereignly the Savior loves us. That it is not just a one-time display on a cross, but it is on display as He performed miracles in this life, that He could be who He said He was, that yes, it was on the fullest display on, on crucifixion, and that even still now as He intercedes, His love is still on display. This gives us the most solid ground to endure anything that this life would bring our way. Now, this does not mean that our heels don't slide. It does not mean that we do not perhaps at time fall on our backs. But what it does mean is that we are never left on shaky ground. We are never left questioning whether or not we are taken care of, both in a moment or in eternity. It means that we are held by the Savior. It means that we will persevere until the end. We also see in this text that whatever Christ had done for his disciples, he continues to do. As we can go back and read in verse 11 and 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. Christ is praying this now, knowing full well he will continue to do so at the right hand of God and saying that he has not lost one of them except Judas, the son of destruction, from the evil root 
of Cain and Abel from the wickedness that came into the world and splintered then all the way apart from the family of God, that Christ has not yet lost one of his sheep, and he never will. That as he's praying this now for the disciples, that he had not lost any of them, and he never will. Now mind you, in this, all of these disciples would lose their lives for Christ, but Christ never lost them. Not for a moment. As a matter of fact, in those moments in which they lost their lives, he was most present with them as they became present with him. And that the glorification that Christ prays for at the start of our section this morning is accomplished when Christ lost his earthly life on the cross. The Christ glorification did not come by way as he deserved of an eternal crown, but instead an earthly one of thorns that did not come in a purple robe, but instead came in nakedness, that did not come in praise and worship, but instead came in beatings and jeering. In that, he was glorified. In that, the word was fulfilled. And in that, he was put to death so we may live. That is our basis for perseverance. And why we do this, and you might think, well, how does this apply to my Sunday scaries and the week coming up? Friends, church family, if we approach life with an eternal perspective and see exactly what it was that was accomplished on the cross, there is no Monday that can shake us. There is no work duty that can phase us, although it may spike up in us a fleshful reaction that we may not want to go to work. We are given the grace to immediately turn that into an act of righteousness. And instead, we can put off our flesh, understand why we get to work, who we work for, and then we, com- we continue on in a proper way of how to work. That when we see suffering, as it rests upon us, even though we may never see it coming, that we get a clear picture from Christ on how to persevere, of how to press on. This is not something that is brought about by circumstance in this life. This is a necessity for every single Christian. And not only that, it is a necessity for the church. This is something that we've gotten to do well together and that there is not one member of the body of Christ who suffers alone. Although there may be circumstances that are personalized to one's individual suffering, it is not a burden that they carry by themselves. As a matter of fact, a correct illustration on how that is seen is a brother or sister who perhaps has something so heavy they cannot carry themselves that they themselves are carried by their brothers and sisters to the foot of the cross. That they lay it down in prayer and they get up and walk away trusting it's taken care of. Trusting it was paid for. And trusting although the effects might still be felt, the solution is found in the Savior. This is how we persevere. Not that we are masochists spiritually or that we go back to our suffering, or that suffering is done in a moment. There may be many of us, perhaps all of us, who have an eternal thorn in the flesh, just as Paul did, just as many great men of God did and women of God did in their earthly ministries. Just as Christ did, if you consider, although it may not be on display as Paul's was, Christ certainly faced an earthly level of suffering his entire time here that he did not have anywhere to lay his head, that he was hated, that he was not welcomed in the very synagogues that he grew up in. 
Christ certainly suffered, so we will suffer, but we will always be given ground to persevere. This is because we are active participants of cleaning the household of faith. There is nothing that can sideline us or take us out of this game, if you will. There is nothing that can ever remove us from the hand of the Father and in that from His will. We always have good ground to run on. If life causes us to rest, we rest and we press on. If life puts us on our back, we ask one another to lift us up and we're carried and then we press on. And all of this church family, it is something that we do together and it's something that Christ has done for us. Continue here with me, verses 15 through 19. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. As I've said, our hope is not to be faithful to the point of escape. It's to be faithful to the point of victory. The blood that was spilt before us as the church did not secure a good loss for the church. The martyrs who are being martyred now are not going out there and giving it their best try for the kingdom just so we can lose. Christ did not die on the cross as a sign of defeat. Rather, when Christ's last drop of blood was spilt, it was the secure of victory. We as the church, although we may suffer in our lives and although the church will go through persecution, we are never heading anywhere other than victory in Christ. We must understand that as, as where we stand now, that is where we stand now, in this life, if all of our lives amount to just a small uptick for the life of the church, then God will be glorified. But even in that, if all of our lives are fighting faithfully in a small downtick in the eternity of the church, then God will be glorified. Church family, we are not waiting around to be poofed away from this earth. It's an unbiblical concept. It's rooted in fiction and not scripture. We are sent here just as Christ was sent with a purpose. And it's to subdue the earth with the grace of God. There is no point in scripture where we are sent out to lose, if not our own lives. And even though, even so, if that were to happen, we win Christ. Look at the call of Genesis 1.28 to fill the earth and subdue it. This is what Christ came to continue to establish and this is what the church exists to do today. Now why is this so vital for us to understand? Simply put, it is because our culture is at a sort of crossroads and point in time where the church cannot afford to sit back and build cultural capital. It cannot sit back and afford to give some here that we may be able to come back and charge later. It cannot afford to make little of God's grace and rule and make much of friendship with the world. 
This is something that the church must grab onto, and we see that God's grace leaves no option other than for the world to be subdued. He is too good. He is too good, and the world is far too corrupt. The church is here to win the world. More than that, we will win the world. Why is this, and why can we say this with such assurance? Because Christ himself said, take heart, I have overcome the world. Christ himself in the Great Commission makes it very clear that all authority is his in heaven and where? On earth. Christ makes it very clear that as he is sitting in heaven, he is not idle, but he is putting all of his enemies where? Under his feet. And that what are the hands and feet he has sent to accomplish this on earth? You. His church. This should give us such boldness and all the same such humility as we mirror Christ's humility here being the God-man and praying for sinners. Our purpose on this earth is to mirror Christ to that end, to glorify the Father, to glorify the Father, not to be kept from evil, but made good. This Christian life is not so much a religious game. It is more so an active, yes, relationship that is lived out between a body and its head. That body is the church, and the head is King Christ. Christ is purifying his bride. And we get to be an active participant of this. And why and how does this matter in our church ecclesiology? Or rather, how our church functions? It shows us just how important accountability is. It shows us just how important confession is. This is the means by which the church is made pure. By which God makes us righteous. I would call us to remember that we are no longer ones who sin with every breath. We are co-heirs. We are of a royal race. We are pulled out from this world. We are made new. We're sons and daughters. Not of the prince of this world, but of God, our Father. Look at me, if you will, verse 19 in closing. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be made sanctified in truth. The original language there says, I sanctify myself, or I set myself apart. Christ's devotion here amounts to a crown of thorns. His consecration and prayer now prepares him to glorify God as he hung on the cross. And in that, this consecration, this sanctification of himself is not a new work. This is something that Christ did fully and perfectly every single day of his existence. So why does that matter for us as the church? Why does this affect, how does it affect how we live? Church family, Our daily devotion must far supersede things that we read, listen to, speak of, and do again and again. Now don't mistake me, our daily devotion must include being with God through prayer and the Word. But if our daily devotion, being in prayer, being in His Word, does not direct us to surrender our whole lives for that day to the Father, then we miss something along the way. Our devotion should lead to a consecration 
in which we devote ourselves that day, moment by moment, that anything may happen today. And, and just speaking from where I'm at, that I may go to work and not see results. That we may till in the city and not see immediate results. That we may be fighting hard and still suffering in some ways, although we put sin to death and death and time again. That suffering may come, that I may fail, that anything may happen, but the one thing that will not happen is I will not abandon my post for Christ. That I will not live for anything other than the one who died for me. Consider for yourself, just perhaps in this moment, ask God to reveal to you, has this been the result of daily devotion? Do you so abide in Christ that it dwells in you this zeal to say anything can happen, but the one thing that won't is I will not forget God's faithfulness to me and I will not compromise my faithfulness to him. This is the devotion that the church needs, not so we can sit in an ivory tower of religiosity, but so that we can properly mirror the devotion of Christ. Consider the other side of this. And just hear this, hear this. Christ in his earthly ministry lived this perfectly, knowing full well suffering come whatever may come. That I may lose my life. That I may not even have a place to rest my head. That the world will kill me. That the world would trade me for a robber. Yet I will not do is not malign my Father, God, and I will not lose a single one of my disciples. That is Christ's consecration. That is his resolution unto the Father and to his church. What confidence that should give us. This world, everybody, is Christ's. It is Christ's. The light that we are as the church and individual members of it will snuff out every bit of darkness before time is done. Christ came into this world to weave it back together to the Father's will. And we are here now as the individual stitches in which the whole world will see that Christ is indeed king. He is the one who rules all things and the only one worth worshiping. Amen? This is the high priestly prayer that we would know God, that we would believe Christ is him in flesh, and that we would love and live for him in such a way that every moment of every day belongs to him and not to us that God may be glorified. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity again to worship you as a freed people. That we have so many resources to know you, to know more of you, to read of you. But, but in that, God, I just pray for us as your church here, that the more we know of you, the more we would love you. And then that, the more that we would live for you. I pray we would have confidence as Christians of that which would match our king. That would match Christ as he is our cornerstone. I pray that we would understand that this world is 
yours. It is our home. And that, while our scripture made it clear, we are not of this world, it is because it is not that we're going to be pulled out from it. It is not that it doesn't belong to you. It is that we are a heavenly race. And oh, that we would just get a glimpse of your majesty that would pick up broken pieces as jars of clay and piece them together into the most beautiful, beautiful bride, the church. I pray that while we are in this world that we would understand Christ has sent us here for a purpose, that we are indeed sent, we are saved, and we are being sanctified, and in all of that, that we would make much of you before a world, a world that hates you, does not know you, but will ultimately worship you whether it be as righteous judge or true king. I pray we would do all that we can to make sure it's the latter. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.